So with that being said, turn with me to Luke chapter 24. We are going to be in verses 44 through 53 today. Luke 24, 44 through 53. As we have, over the past few weeks, been enjoying the grace of God through the, uh, the book of John in this last chapter, uh, we have made our way past what was uh, a very dark time, as Luke um, wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about the betrayal and the death and the suffering of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the Son of God in the flesh. And now for the past few weeks, we have had the privilege and the joy of getting to see our risen Lord and the hope and the excitement and the joy that comes from seeing the reality of the risen Savior that Christ rose bodily from the grave. We got to see a few weeks ago the, uh, the instance of of at the tomb, seeing it, finding it empty as Mary Magdalene and the other women found the tomb empty and then interacted with the angels and then ultimately got to see Christ uh, and, and were filled with such joy and such hope. And then as, as Jesus on the road to Emmaus interacted with two of his disciples uh, and declared to them hope and joy and then last week as Robert did such a great job of of encouraging us with the hope and the excitement and the joy that is to be found in the actual bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. That because our Savior, Jesus Christ, rose from the grave grave bodily, not just as a spirit, not just as an idea, but that Christ physically in his body rose from the grave, glorified and made whole, we too as believers can look forward to one day being resurrected and enjoying the glory of Christ for all of eternity. And now today we conclude with, again, what I believe to be a, a message of great hope and great encouragement to the church here in Luke chapter 24. And so I'm going to read for us verses 44 through the end of the chapter. And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. For you are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending you the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Let's pray. Lord, we come before your word today asking that you would humble us, asking, Lord, that you would give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear what your word has to proclaim to us today. Lord, I pray that all of the distractions would leave my mind and all of ours minds as, Lord, the weight of life can so often weigh us down and uh, even invade these spaces. But, Lord, we ask today by your grace, by the Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would Clear our minds of those distractions and allow us this time to focus on, to dwell on, to meditate on your word, to learn, to be taught 
from the Holy Spirit. Lord, I ask that you would use me as a vessel. And the Lord, anything that I say that is confusing or contradictory or wrong, Lord, that you would forgive me of that and that you would uh, remove that from our remembrance. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So our text today, uh, as we have read, I believe outlines for us what I have entitled Essential Ingredients for Building the Church. And those three ingredients are, as I believe we see them in this text, uh, what I have called illumination, dissemination, and intercession. These essential ingredients for building the church. For anyone in here who enjoys baking or cooking of any sort, um, I, I am not much of a baker, not much of a chef. Um, when my wife wants me to cook something, uh, I like to grill hot dogs or make oatmeal. That is about the extent of my cooking. But uh, I know from my experience in eating that there are certain foods that simply require certain ingredients. There are certain foods that will not be those foods if they don't have the right ingredients. We could go down uh, and think about various foods that without certain ingredients would not exist as the food that they are. Uh, but I think we could take something as simple as bread and the ingredient of flour. Some people may argue with me, but flour is an essential ingredient in bread. You cannot have bread the way we understand it, goodness, fluffiness, tasty, soft bread without flour. It is not possible. For those of you in here who are gluten-free and saying there's such thing as gluten-free bread, I'm sorry, that's not bread. That's something else because it doesn't have flour in it, it's something else entirely. Flour is, in my opinion, and for the sake of this sermon, an essential ingredient in bread. And, and I think everyone at least understands what I'm talking about, that, that you cannot have bread without flour or some very close equivalent uh, as a substitute. Uh, the package that you buy on the shelf of Wonder or Bunny Bread or Great Value, it has flour in it. And if it didn't have flour in it, it would not be bread. The same is true for the, for the gospel. The same is true for the kingdom of God being built. That there are essential ingredients that must be in place if the church is going to be built. And that list is long. The list of ingredients necessary for the building of the church, the growing of the kingdom of God, is a long list. But for our purposes today, I would argue that Luke has laid out for us these three ingredients, presented them as he is closing up this letter to Theophilus, this uh, this, this letter about Jesus Christ and his work here on earth, Luke has, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, deemed it necessary to recognize and to touch on these essential truths as he closes his letter. The good news is that all of the necessary ingredients, though, that are required for the growing of the church, for the building of the kingdom of God, are supplied by God. It is a huge weight, a huge relief to us. It is a huge uh, encouragement to us that there is very little that we can on our own bring to the table to grow the church, to build the kingdom. As a pastor, I know the temptation, I know the desire to see the church grow. And I know that there is a strong temptation on the part of pastors, on the part of church leaders and others uh, to think that we somehow have uh, a great deal of ability in and of ourselves to grow the church. But the fact of the matter is that all the necessary ingredients to grow the church are found in God. He supplies all of them so that the promise that Jesus makes when he says, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
is a true statement. It is a trustworthy statement, and it is a trustworthy statement because all that is needed, all the essential ingredients required are supplied by God himself and not by anything found in us. To be clear, there is more to building the church than just the three things that we have listed today. But these three things are emphasized here at the end of Luke's gospel, and each of them is absolutely essential for the church to grow, and therefore uh, we should take a look at each one of them individually. So we start in verses 44 through 45 with the doctrine of illumination, this necessary ingredient of God giving sight to blinded eyes. This section of, of our text presents for us what, what I would call the second half of a delicious revelation sandwich or an, uh, a revelation Oreo cookie, if you will. And what I mean by that is to say that here in the first portion of our text today, verses 44 through 45, what is it that Jesus draws the disciples' attention to? It is not, as he already has, the reality of his body right before them. It is not that exactly. But what Jesus draws the attention of the disciples to is the text of Scripture. As he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Essential to the foundation for the disciples' hope for their faith and for ours today is the Scripture. And when I say that this is a, a revelation sandwich, I say that because when Jesus met the men on the road to Emmaus, what is it that he started with? What is it that Jesus used initially to open their eyes to the reality of his resurrection? It was not by standing directly before them immediately and saying, here I am, Jesus, before you. Here is what you need to believe that I have been resurrected. Jesus didn't start with that. Jesus started by opening up the Old Testament scriptures and proclaiming the scriptures to them and how they testify of himself. That this is the first thing that Jesus does in order to open the disciples' mind up to the reality of his resurrection speaks volumes. And then, as kind of the, the filling in the middle, the Oreo filling, if you will, Jesus does stand before them and say, look at me. Look at my hands. Look at my side. Look at my flesh. Look at my bones. A spirit does not have flesh and bones, but I stand before you with flesh and bones. The resurrected Christ presented before the disciples and yet what we know in that text, as Robert preached last week, that uh, even in that text, we see that uh, they still struggled to believe. It says in verse 41 of Luke 24, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. It's as Robert said last week, this idea that it is too good to be true. It really does seem that way, doesn't it? That could, by and large, be the message of the gospel, that it is too good to be true, even Paul anticipates this as he writes to uh, the church in Rome and, and comes to uh, Romans chapter 6 where Paul, as he is laying out the gospel, Paul anticipates that people will hear the gospel and say that it is too hard to believe. It is too good to be true. And then Paul proclaims, what shall we say then? Anticipating the argument that will come, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means. Paul anticipates that the gospel will be found so hard to believe, so free, that grace flows so freely that there will be some who will, who will claim and say 
that it doesn't matter what you do, you can live however you want, that grace is that free. It sounds that good to be true. And we see the same thing is happening in the hearts and in the minds of the disciples as they still disbelieve for joy until finally Jesus finishes the Oreo cookie and says, I'm gonna take you back to scripture again. What do the scriptures say? They testify about me. He says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus declaring again that everything that is written in the Old Testament scriptures is about Christ. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But their eyes were darkened, their understanding was lacking until verse 45 tells us that he opened their minds to understand the scripture. This is the doctrine of illumination. I am reminded of when I was in college taking a chemistry course, uh, and I am not good at science, and so I took the easiest chemistry course that I could find. It was called Chemistry 103, Matter, Molecules, and Me. I thought, I can handle this course. And about three weeks into the course, I said, man, I am, cannot handle this course. I just did not understand this weird thing called stoichiometry. Is anyone in here familiar with stoichiometry? Two people. See, it's an enigma. I mean, and the people that raise their hands, I don't even know if they understand it fully. But uh, my gracious wife, who was dating me at the time, I had, uh, by God's providence, just started dating her a few weeks prior to this, uh, is now a chemistry teacher, and showed me this amazing thing that she called the heart chart. And if you are familiar with the, the chart used to understand stoichiometry, it goes by different names, the mole chart, mole land, uh, all kinds of different names. But it was a chart that basically just explained how stoichiometry worked. And it completely opened my eyes to understand stoichiometry, at least for that semester. I understood stoichiometry when my wife showed me this simple little chart and explained it to me. I was missing an important detail. I was missing an important thing that, that in a certain sense, illuminated my understanding of stoichiometry. The disciples here in our text, they understood to an extent. They understood Jesus Christ was their teacher, that he was uh, the coming Messiah that was predicted, or at least that was their hope, as the ones on the road to Emmaus said. And yet, even so, their hearts were darkened. They were still lacking in their understanding until the moment when Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, opened their eyes to understand the gospel. Jesus taught them the scriptures. It was necessary that Christ open their eyes to under understand the scriptures, because apart from that, these disciples were never going to understand fully. And though we sometimes think that the disciples were not uniquely dim-witted, they were not uniquely unable to understand because they were lowly fishermen or tax collectors, these disciples were like all of us. And all of us, like these disciples, have been caused by sin to be unable to rightly and truly understand the things of God. All of our eyes have been darkened. All of our hearts have been hardened. All of our understandings have been dimmed because of sin. None of us has come to an understanding of the gospel truly and rightly except 
the work of illumination done by God. Not a single person in here came to their understanding of Scripture because of their own intellect and their own intelligence. Have you ever wondered why it is that there are so many extremely intelligent people in the world, scholars, historians, who make it their practice to study Scripture, to study the Bible, and know it better than many of us do, and yet they don't believe? Why is that? It's not that their intellect is lacking. It's not that they're not smart enough. Most of them are extremely smart. The problem is that God has not opened their eyes to believe. I am reminded of Acts chapter 4, verse 13, where the disciples uh, were proclaiming Christ and doing so in such an amazing way that it astonished those who were around so that the Pharisees and, and the Jewish leaders at the time said this in Acts 4.13, now they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. This is the difference maker. These disciples were not great scholars. They were not intellectual elites. They were normal human beings who previously did not understand because of the darkness of their hearts, because the blindness of their eyes, but now have been brought to an understanding because of the work of illumination and were proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and his resurrection in such a way that even the Pharisees were astonished, recognizing that they were uneducated, common men. As someone who's not all that intelligent, I find this to be very encouraging. I am by no means a scholar. That's not to say that I'm just completely dumb, but it is to say that my hope that my reliance on whether or not to understand the scriptures is not based on my own ability. It's not based on my own intelligence. That I can fail every test I'm ever given and yet understand the scriptures rightly because I have been illuminated by God. This brings us hope. It also brings us humility to recognize this reality, that we have no reason to boast in our understanding of the gospel. We have no reason to think ourselves better than others because somehow we came to the understanding that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for our sins, that only in him can we be forgiven, can we be made right. This is not something that we have come to by our own understanding, but something that has been granted us by Christ. And that also leads us to ask this question and that is how often when we sit down to read our Bibles, do we pray and ask the Holy Spirit, illuminate our eyes to understand? It is one of those promises in Scripture that is a guarantee. It is not a request that will be denied. We will not ever pray to the Lord and ask Him to help us to see and understand the Scriptures rightly. And He says, nope, I would rather you be confused. I would rather you not know. As God's children, if if we are his, if we have the Holy Spirit indwelling within us, then he is going to do the work of illuminating our hearts. And it is a good thing for us to ask and to pray for that he would do that work, that as we read the scriptures, that he would open our eyes to see and understand the same way he did the disciples. The second thing that we see in our text today, the second necessary ingredient is dissemination. God empowering and sending his people to proclaim freedom. In verses 
46 through 49 of our text, we have uh, the account in Luke of the Great Commission as Jesus sends his disciples on mission. We read in verse 46 through 48, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. According to what we see here in Luke and throughout the New Testament, we see that God has chosen human beings, his disciples, his followers, as his means of spreading the good news of Christ to his people. That God in his sovereignty has opted, has ordained that we would be the means that he would use to grow his church. Starting with the apostles and then expanding out from there. And it is true today that this declaration, this commission is true for Christians today. Notice the description of the message that Jesus gives to them. The message that is to be proclaimed to the nations in verse 47. It is a, a message that is in the name of Christ is repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And though this is certainly not an exhaustive exposition of the gospel, it does give us important insights as to some of the things that are absolutely necessary to the gospel. That Luke, in his explanation of the Great Commission and what it is that is to be proclaimed, extends a few things. First of all, that the gospel is centered on and about Christ. That all of this is to be proclaimed in his name. If you're proclaiming the gospel and Christ is not the center, if Christ is not the point of what you are proclaiming, then you are not proclaiming the gospel. If whatever you are proclaiming does not lead people to the cross of Jesus Christ, to him as the redemptor, then you are not proclaiming the gospel. Everything that is proclaimed as good news points to Christ. He says also that this message is the forgiveness of sins. That forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to the world. That as we have said today in our liturgy, that the gospel involves, first of all, bad news. The bad news is that we are sinful. That we are sinful, broken, dirty people, and we are standing before a holy and righteous and just God, and we do so condemned apart from Christ. That because of our sin, we have no hope, and we stand under God's wrath. The good news of the gospel proclaims that our sins in Christ Jesus are forgiven, that they are washed, that they are cured. But then also notice that this message involves repentance. That Luke seems, it, seems to find it, along with uh, everything that he writes in the book of Acts, necessary to include repentance in his proclamation of the gospel. This idea of repentance has been misunderstood in many circles. Many people think of repentance as us trying really hard, as us trying to be as good as we possibly can, as our effort in order to make ourselves holy and righteous. And I would, I would argue that that is a misunderstanding of repentance. That a better understanding of repentance is an understanding that starts with us understanding that we have a changed life 
that our entire person has been made new, that we are a new creation, and that along with that, all of our desires and all of our will has been corrected, has been redeemed, has been changed to where we no longer desire the things of the flesh, to where we no longer desire our sin. We no longer find that to be good and right, but we now are on the side of God and see our sin as terrible, as disgusting, as filthy, and as needing to be cleansed. It is a new life that is being described when we think of repentance. Not just that we try really hard, but that our desires be changed, that we no longer desire our sin, that we no longer desire the things of the flesh, but that we desire the things of Christ. This is the prime importance that Luke gives to repentance, that it goes along with the gospel, hand and foot. Any of us in here, as we see this commission, this great commission in Luke, we see that it is a really big and a really important task that Christ has given us. And if we're honest, it's intimidating. I think anyone who says otherwise is either not understanding the task of, of extending the kingdom of God, of proclaiming the good news, of taking up the mission of God in this world. If anyone doesn't see that as a big deal, as maybe even somewhat intimidating or daunting, I wonder if they understand it rightly or if they're just lying. Because it is a, it is a big deal to recognize what God has called us to, what he called his disciples to here and what he has extended to us that we be his means of growing the church, of building the kingdom. It is intimidating. But whatever it is that God calls us to, he equips us for. And that is truly and especially true when he calls believers to be his means to proclaim the gospel to the world. That he has not told us, all right, go and do it, and good luck. What does he say in Matthew? Behold, I am with you, always to the end of the age that we do not get sent out from god on our own without any help without any power but what we see in verse 49 he says and behold i am sending the promise of my father with you but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high god has declared to his disciples to his apostles here and to us today that we have not been sent out on mission powerless that we have not been sent out into the world to proclaim the good news of God, to live out our lives, to, to do the mission of God here on earth, powerless. But we have empowered by the Holy Spirit for the work. We see here in this text the, that the coming of the Holy Spirit, as he says when he says, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, this promise of the Holy Spirit that is to come. We see what he says in verse 49, what he implies is that with this promise that I am sending with the Holy Spirit comes power, that we have power in the Holy Spirit to do the work that God has called us to do. He has not called us to something that he has not also empowered us to do. Even in this, we have hope. We have reason for joy, even though the task is intimidating, even though the job is huge and the work is hard, he has empowered us for it, that we do it by his power, not by our own by his strength that he has granted us in the Holy Spirit. We also, in those moments when we are intimidated, can remind ourselves of the doctrine that we just learned about in point number one. We recognize that God uses 
us to proclaim the message, but he is the one who does the work of opening the eyes of unbelievers to understand and believe the gospel. What a weight that is lifted off of our shoulders. If you've ever shared the gospel with someone, you've probably walked away from that at times saying, I did a terrible job. I stumbled over my words. I think I left something out. I think I said uh, the wrong word instead of penal substitution. I said something else. It happens, and it happens to the best of us. And yet, in that, God is gracious. He does the work of illuminating hearts. It is not up to us to change that person's heart, to soften them, to open their eyes to the gospel. God does that. What a hope that is lifted off of our shoulders, that he does the work. He's just kind enough to let us take part and be his means. The third and final thing we see in our passage today as we look to verses 50 through 53 is we see Christ's work of intercession. The risen Christ at the Father's right hand working on behalf of his people. This is some of the best news in this passage, and there's very little in this passage about it, I know. But we recognize in verses 50 through 53 that this is Christ's ascension. We see in verse 50 and following, he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Christ ascended into heaven while blessing his disciples, but his blessing did not stop. He did not bless them, stop blessing them, and then enter into heaven. No, his blessing continued. Even as he ascended, and even as he sits now at the right hand of the throne of God, his blessing upon his people is still going forth and is still being poured out. There's a lot that could be said of the doctrinal significance of Jesus' ascension into heaven. But there is none more important than us to understand the role of that Christ is now operating in as he sits at God's right hand and intercedes on behalf of his people. Nowhere do we see this truth bear such weight as it does in Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. If you are familiar with Romans 8, you know that it is a glorious and amazing proclamation of the gospel as Paul brings this, uh, this book, this, gospel, this letter, this epistle that he has written to the church in Rome, to its climax in Romans chapter 8, declaring to them the goodness of God and salvation through Jesus Christ, the hope that we have as believers, that we are not condemned but have been freed from our sin and now look to Jesus. I'm going to read for us Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 39. Bear with me as this is a long text, but listen and be encouraged. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. 
we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, Paul says. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You notice where Paul's hope is rooted in this text. It is rooted in Christ Jesus and his death, resurrection, and in the fact that he is now seated at the right hand of God interceding for us. It is because of this reality that he asked the rhetorical question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So any of these things listed, all of these terrible things, shall any of them ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? And his answer, based on Christ's intercessory work, is no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This work of intercession that Christ does on our behalf cannot be understated. This leads Paul to proclaim that we are more than conquerors through, though our, our good deeds, we are, we are not more than conquerors through our good deeds. We are not more than conquerors through, through our intellect, through our resolve. No, in all these, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Take heart, Christian. God is for you. God is for you, not because you are so good or you are so cute. God is for you because Christ is your representative. He is your advocate. He is your intercessor. This is what leads John in the book of 1 John to say that uh, he writes these things for us that we may not sin, but says, but if you do sin, we have an advocate before God, Jesus Christ that we have an advocate. Even when we sin, even when we fall short, even when it seems like no one could ever love us and we are presented with the wickedness of our heart, we have an advocate, that is Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of the throne of God interceding for us. That when Jesus ascended into heaven, he did not go up there, kick his feet up and say, my work is done. No, his work continues even still and it continues on our behalf. We would be wrong to think that his redeeming work was over. In fact, he is working right now on our behalf as our representative, as our advocate before a holy God. And it is only because he is our advocate that we can stand before a holy God because of his intercessory work. Here's what we can conclude. Here's what's so neat about the book of, of Luke is that the book of Luke uh, was written as a two-volume set. That this was volume one that Luke has written and now concluded for us. But we see volume two written in the book of Acts as he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that not only did Luke record the life of Jesus, but he also wrote a companion piece about the expansion of the church, about his continued work from his place on high, the building of the kingdom of God. We can look to Acts and see the fruit of Christ's work coming to bear as the gospel spreads and grows, and we can take heart in that as we look to our lives and know that the same gospel that is at work, the same necessary ingredients that bring about the spread of the gospel so miraculously in Acts is at work here today in Redeemer Fellowship Church, in Evansville, 
Indiana, in the church at large throughout the world. But these necessary ingredients are still working, are still bringing about the spread of the gospel and the growing of the church today. So let us take from this passage, again, more hope and more joy and more confidence, not in ourselves, but in the work of God on our behalf. In the work of God to open our eyes to understand the gospel and the work of Christ to intercede for us and in the work of the Holy Spirit to empower us for the sake of proclaiming the gospel. All of this is God's work that he does to grow his kingdom. And praise God, we get to be witness to it and get to be part of it. Our passage today ought to demonstrate to us emphatically that the redemption of sinful people is entirely a work of God. He is the one who from start to finish is working out his plan of salvation to build his kingdom. And we are called now, church, to take part and to worship him the same way the disciples did. As they left this place, having seen him return, verse 52 and 53 says, they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Let this lead, let this lead us to worship and praise the God who has saved the people for himself. Let's pray.